Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Recorded Books presents an unabridged recording of Queen Isabella. Treachery, Adultery, and Murder in Medieval England by Alison Weir Narrated by Lisette Licar and directed by Ben Ruggiero This book is copyrighted 2005 by Alison Weir This recording is copyrighted 2005 by Recorded Books And now... Queen Isabella Author's Note I have generally adopted the anglicised or Latin form of names. Thus, in the interests of using the name by which she is now commonly called, and which was in fact used by many chroniclers in her own time, I have chosen to refer to the subject of this book as Isabella, rather than use the French form of her name, Isabelle, by which she would usually have been known in her lifetime, Norman French being the language of the English court in the early 14th century. Unless otherwise indicated, place names have been given in their modern form. Unless they are contemporary quotes that appear in the text, the chapter headings have been taken from Christopher Marlowe's play, Edward II. She-wolf of France, with unrelenting fangs that tearest at the bowels of thy mangled mate. Thomas Gray It is not wise to set yourself in opposition to the king. The outcome is apt to be unfortunate. Vita Eduardi Secundi Introduction The She-Wolf of France in Newgate Street in the city of London stand the meagre ruins of Christ that the legends about Isabella of France paint a picture of a tragic, tormented, cruel, and essentially evil woman. And indeed, her historical reputation is not much more favourable. Since 1327, she has been more vilified than any other English queen. In her own lifetime, the chronicler Geoffrey Le Baker called her that Harridan, or that Virago, referring to her as Jezebel, and to her episcopal followers as priests of Baal. Other chroniclers, although more discreet, were equally disapproving. In 1592, in his play The Tragedy of Edward II, Christopher Marlowe wrote scathingly of that unnatural queen, false Isabel and had Edward refer to her as my unconstant queen who spots my nuptial bed with infamy. So too, in his controversial 1991 filmed adaptation of the play, the director, Derek Jarman, showed little sympathy for Isabella, portraying her as a sexually repressed virago. Shakespeare had invented the epithet She-Wolf of France for Margaret of Anjou, the scheming, vindictive wife of Henry VI. But in the 18th century, when England was at war with France, the poet Thomas Gray 
applied it to Isabella, and it has stuck ever since. In his The Bard, 1757, he speaks with horrific significance of the she-wolf of France with unrelenting fangs that terraced the bowels of thy mangled mate. In the twentieth century, the German playwright and poet Bertolt Brecht revived the same theme in his life of Edward II of England. In this, Isabella declares, I shall become a she-wolf, ranging bare-toothed through the scrub, not resting until earth covers Edward, drenched by the rain of exile, hardened by foreign winds. And in 1960, in his novel The She-Wolf of France, the acclaimed French writer Maurice Drouon describes Isabella as having small, sharp, pointed carnivore's teeth, like those of a she-wolf. Thus the legend has become deeply entrenched in the popular consciousness. Isabella has fared little better with the historians. In the mid-nineteenth century, Agnes Strickland wrote loftily that since the days of the fair and false Elfrida, who is believed to have arranged the murder of her stepson, King Edward the Martyr, in 979, no Queen of England has left so dark a stain on the annals of female royalty as Isabella, who is the only instance of a Queen of England acting in open and shameless violation of the duties of her high vocation, allying herself with traitors and foreign agitators against her king and husband, and staining her name with the combined crimes of treason, adultery, murder, and regicide. This proved almost too much for Miss Strickland, with her highly developed Victorian moral values, and her account was strictly bowdlerized, but even more modern historians have little that is good to say about Isabella, and most repeat the calumnies of the old chroniclers. In 1955, V. H. H. Green called her a woman of no real importance or attraction, which is as inaccurate as it is dismissive. While in 1967, Kenneth Fowler denigrated her as a woman of evil character, a notorious schemer who was infamous for her marital inconstancy although he did concede that this was in part excused by her husband's weaknesses. Elsewhere, Isabella is one of the most beautiful but depraved women of her time, or simply Isabella the Mad. How then did Isabella acquire such a reputation? Married at twelve in 1308 to the homosexual Edward II, she grew up to be a legendary beauty, yet was largely neglected by her weak husband and cruelly slighted by his vicious favourites. For many years she endured this treatment, gaining renown as a model consort and a peacemaker. But in 1325, driven to desperation as a result of being deprived of her liberty, her children and her income, she managed to escape to France where she began a doubly adulterous affair with Roger, Lord Mortimer, an exiled English traitor. Together, they led the first successful invasion of England since the Norman Conquest, deposing Edward II and setting themselves up as regents for Isabella's eldest son, Edward III. Some months later, it was announced that Edward II had died in captivity and soon afterwards rumour had it that he had been brutally murdered on the orders of Mortimer and Isabella. Before then, however, the unpopular policies of the regents had turned the people against them. When Edward III came of age in 1330, he overthrew their regime and had Mortimer executed. Isabella was spared any blame and spent the last 28 years of her life in honourable retirement. Nevertheless, the taints of adultery, treason and murder have blotted her name ever since. Other queens have been accused of murder, treason and adultery, but they have not attracted such enduring opprobrium. Perhaps because the case against them has never been satisfactorily proved.
Few now believe that Anne Boleyn betrayed Henry VIII's with five men and also plotted his death. Catherine Howard always denied committing adultery. Monastic gossip accused Isabella of Angoulême of taking lovers. King John is said to have had them strung up above her bed. Yet he never openly charged her with infidelity, and there is no question attached to the legitimacy of her children. Eleanor of Aquitaine was probably unfaithful to her first husband and led a rebellion against her second, Henry II, yet few writers now castigate her for it. But Isabella is known to have lived in adultery for at least four years, in flagrant violation of the moral code of her time. Furthermore, with her lover, she plotted and mounted the successful invasion against her husband, which led to his deposition and his reputed murder. Such conduct on the part of a queen outraged conventional ideals of womanhood, which demanded that the king's wife be utterly loyal and sexually beyond reproach. And it also desecrated the sanctity of monarchy, hence the charges of adultery and treason. As for murder and regicide, the evidence is murkier. We are now not even certain that Edward II was murdered, still less that his estranged wife was a party to it, although many historians have assumed that she was. It is her sexual misconduct that has above all made Isabella infamous. Her reputation rests largely on the prejudices of monkish chroniclers and Victorian historians. Yet, as Nora Lofts has pointed out, if she had not taken a lover, her story would have been very different. An examination of contemporary records reveals that she had many fine qualities, and instead of incurring shame, dishonor, and revilement, she might have been seen as a liberator, the saviour who unshackled England from a weak and vicious monarch and helped to put a strong king on its throne. Changing social attitudes now permit a more tolerant and sympathetic view of Isabella's personal relationships. What comes across most strongly in her story is the sheer awfulness of the situation in which she eventually found herself, and from which she managed to escape only by using her own initiative and cunning. She overcame male prejudice, won the sympathy of the people, and emerged as a heroine. It was her subsequent deeds that greatly shocked her contemporaries, who had hitherto perceived her to be a model queen. But this heroine was fatally flawed, and thereafter she found herself on a downhill slide to tragedy and obloquy. Remarkably, there has never been a full-length published biography of Isabella. An unpublished one exists in the form of Paul Doherty's 1977 thesis, primarily an academic study. Doherty's recent book on Isabella is not a biography, for it focuses mainly on the mystery surrounding Edward II's fate and Isabella's involvement in it. Isabella has been the subject of many learned articles in historical journals and, of course, of Agnes Strickland's greatly outdated life. A reappraisal is therefore much overdue. Nowadays, after decades of change in the perception of the role of women, it is possible to view Isabella in a new light, to pity her, even to respect her. Women are no longer expected to be placid adornments of their husbands or the victims of circumstance. They are movers and shakers, able to shape their own destinies, make their own choices, and choose their own sexual partners. What once appeared so terrible seems so no longer. Seduced by the drama of Isabella's life, I came to this project with many of the traditional misconceptions. I certainly didn't like her very much, and this rather concerned me, as I have always found as a writer that it helps to have a certain rapport with my subject. Eleanor of Aquitaine was undoubtedly a flawed woman, yet I had great admiration for her. Fortunately, and against all my expectations, while I was working on this book, 
My opinion of Isabella was gradually revised, as the sources revealed a rather different person from the one I had imagined. Isabella was every bit as vigorous and capable as Eleanor of Aquitaine, and in many ways her experiences were similar. Both were spirited and cultivated French women. Both faced hardship and adversity. Both were highly sexed and trapped in frustrating marriages. Both had to cope with their spouse's infidelities, and both took lovers. More seriously, both led rebellions against their royal husbands, and both spent time under house arrest. Both were adept at statecraft, and both were controversial in their own day. But unlike Eleanor, as we have seen, Isabella does not enjoy a brilliant posthumous reputation. Now, having re-evaluated all the evidence for Isabella's life, and having in the process stripped away the romantic legends and lurid myths, I not only have enormous sympathy for her, but also considerable regard. Consequently, the aim of this book is to restore the reputation and rehabilitate the memory of a remarkable yet grossly maligned woman who was the victim not of her own wickedness, but of circumstances, unscrupulous men, and the sexual prejudices of those who chose to record her story. Like Eleanor, she was flawed, certainly, but her failings were very human ones, and there is much to like about her. What follows, therefore, is intended as the first realistic portrait of this most vilified of queens. Part 1. Isabella and Edward I am your king, though wanting majesty. Chapter 1. The Fair Maiden On May 20th, 1303, a solemn betrothal took place in Paris. The bride was seven years old, the groom, who was not present, nineteen. She was Isabella, the daughter of Philip IV, King of France, he, Edward of Carnarvon, Prince of Wales, the son and heir of Edward I, King of England. The prince had sent the Earl of Lincoln and the Count of Savoy as his proxies, and during the ceremony they formally asked the King and Queen of France for the hand of their daughter, the Lady Isabella, in marriage for the Prince of Wales. Consent was duly given, then Gilles, Archbishop of Narbonne, the presiding priest, required Isabella to plight her troth. Placing her hand in that of the archbishop, she duly did so, giving her assent to the betrothal on condition that all the articles of the marriage treaty were fulfilled. This union had been arranged, after tortuous negotiations, to cement a lasting peace between those old warring enemies, England and France. Isabella's father, Philip IV, known as Philip the Fair, was the most powerful ruler in Christendom at that time, and also the most controversial. Not only had he been engaged in territorial wars with both England and Flanders for the past seven years, he had also, despite boasting the title of Most Christian King, become involved in a bitter conflict with the papacy, after imposing limitations on the Pope's authority in France, this was to lead to his excommunication, only months after his daughter's betrothal. Philip's war with Edward I was the result of a long-standing feud over England's possessions in France. In the 12th century, through the marriage of Henry II to Eleanor of Aquitaine, the empire of the Plantagenets, the dynasty that Henry founded, had extended from Normandy to the Pyrenees while the royal domain of France had been limited to the regions around Paris. By 1204, Henry's son, King John, had lost most of the English territories, including Normandy, to the ambitious Philip II Augustus of France. And there were further French encroachments under John's son, Henry III, as successive French monarchs sought to broaden their domain. 
By the time of Edward I, all that remained of England's lands in France was the prosperous, wine-producing duchy of Gascony, the southern part of the former duchy of Aquitaine, along with the counties of Ponthieu and Montreuil, which had come to the English crown through the marriage of Edward I to Eleanor of Castile in 1254. Philip IV, who was vigorously carrying on his predecessor's expansionist policy, unsurprisingly had his eye on Gascony, and in 1296 he invaded and took possession of it. There were two ways to settle a conflict, by military force or by diplomacy. Edward I wanted Gascony back, and Philip wanted to drive a wedge between Edward and the Flemings, who were uniting against him. By 1298, the two kings were engaged in secret negotiations for a peace. Then, Pope Boniface VIII intervened. In the spring of 1298, he suggested a double marriage alliance between France and England. His plan was that Edward I, a widower since the death of Eleanor of Castile in 1290, marry Philip's sister, Marguerite, while Edward's son and heir the Prince of Wales, be betrothed to Philip's daughter Isabella, then two years old. Once this peace had been sealed, Gascony could be returned to Edward I. Boniface's suggestion appealed to both parties. It conjured up for Philip the tantalising prospect of French influence being extended into England and his grandson eventually occupying the throne of that realm. And, for Edward I, it promised the return of Gascony and a brilliant match for his son. As the daughter of the King of France and the Queen of Navarre, Isabella was a great prize in the marriage market. No Queen of England before her had boasted such a pedigree. The deal was agreed in principle, and two weeks later, on May 15th, King Edward appointed Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln, to negotiate both marriages. In March 1299, Parliament accepted the terms negotiated by Lincoln. And on May 12th following, plans were set in hand for the proxy betrothals. Three days later, the Earl of Lincoln, Amadeus, Count of Savoy, and the Earl of Warwick were appointed to act for Edward I and his son, and soon afterwards they departed for France. Edward I privately instructed the Count to find out as much as he could about the personal attributes of Marguerite of France, including the size of her foot and the width of her waist. The Count reported back that she was a fair and marvellously virtuous lady, pious and charitable. The Treaty of Montreuil, which provided for Isabella's future betrothal to Edward of Carnarvon, was drawn up on June 19th, ratified by Edward I and the Prince of Wales on July 4th, and amplified by the Treaty of Chartres on August 3rd. Under its terms, Philip was to give Isabella a dowry of £18,000, and once she became Queen of England, she was to have in dower all the lands formerly held by Eleanor of Castile, which were in the interim to be settled by Edward I on Marguerite. These amounted to £4,500 per annum. Should Edward I default on the treaties, he would forfeit Gascony. If Philip defaulted, he would pay Edward a fine of £100,000. On August 29th, at the instance of Edward I, the King and Queen of France gave solemn guarantees that the marriages would take place. And in September... Marguerite of France, then aged twenty at most, arrived in England and was married to the sixty-year-old Edward I in Canterbury Cathedral. Against the odds, this proved to be a successful and happy union, and produced three children. In October 1299, Philip IV finally ratified the Treaty of Montreuil. When love buds between great princes... It drives away bitter sobs from their subjects, commented a contemporary. In 1300, 
the French occupied Flanders, but two years later they were humiliatingly defeated and massacred by the Flemings at Courtrai. Throughout this time, Edward I had continued to press for the immediate restoration of Gascony, but Philip wouldn't agree to this until after the Prince of Wales had fulfilled his promise to marry Isabella, who was still too young to wed. By April 1303, Edward I was losing interest in the alliance and was beginning to look elsewhere for a bride for his son. At this crucial point, fearing a war on two fronts, Philip IV played his trump card and agreed to restore the Duchy of Gascony to Edward without further delay. His intention was, as he reminded Edward II in 1308, that it should in time become the inheritance of his grandchildren, the heirs of Edward and Isabella. Edward I was now satisfied, and the Treaty of Paris, which officially restored the duchy, was signed on the same day that the young Isabella and Edward of Carnarvon were betrothed. There would be further conflict between Edward I and Philip IV, but nothing serious enough to break this new alliance. Isabella was now destined to be Queen of England. Isabella was probably born in 1295. There is conflicting evidence as to the year. Piers of Langtoft says she was only seven years of age in 1299, which places her birth in 1292, the date given in the Annals of Wigmore. Yet, she is described by both the French chronicler Guillaume de Nangy and Thomas Walsingham as being twelve years old at the time of her marriage in January 1308, which suggests she was born between January 1295 and January 1296. Given that twelve was the canonical age for marriage, and that in 1298 the Pope had stipulated that she should marry Prince Edward as soon as she reached that age, these dates are viable. In the same document of June 1298, the Pope describes Isabella as being under seven years, which places her birth at any time from 1291 onwards. Furthermore, the Treaty of Montreuil, June 1299, provided for Isabella's betrothal and marriage to take place when she reached the respective canonical ages of seven and twelve. So she must have reached seven before May 1303 and twelve before January 1308. It has been suggested that Isabella had already reached the canonical age for marriage in 1305 when she and the Prince of Wales nominated representatives for a marriage by proxy. This did not take place because of continued squabbles over Guienne. But the fact that these nominations were made has been held as evidence that Isabella had then reached, or was soon to reach, the age of twelve, which would place her date of birth around 1293. Yet this theory is contradicted by a papal dispensation issued by Clement V in November 1305, giving the young couple permission to marry at once, even though Isabella had not yet reached her twelfth year, and was at present in her tenth year. This suggests a birth date between November 1294 and November 1295. The waters are muddied still further by a decree issued by Philip IV in 1310 in which Isabella is referred to as his primogenitor, or firstborn, which suggests that she was born in 1288 at the latest, as her eldest brother, Louis, was born in October 1289. This date conflicts with all the other evidence and is probably the result of an error on the part of the official drawing up of the document. In conclusion, the evidence in the papal dispensations and documents and the Treaty of Montreuil is likely to be more reliable, and, taken together, it supports a birth date between May and November 1295, which in turn is supported by the statements of Guillaume de Nangy and Thomas Walsingham. This would make Isabella seven years old at the time of her betrothal and twelve years old at the time of her marriage.
Isabella grew up in a period when society regarded women as inferior beings. We should look on the female role as a deformity, though one which occurs in the ordinary course of nature, states a 13th-century edition of Aristotle's Generation of Animals. Woman is the confusion of man, an insatiable beast, a continuous anxiety, an incessant warfare, a daily ruin, a house of tempest, and a hindrance to devotion fulminated the misogynistic Vincent de Beauvais in the 13th century. In 1140, the canon lawyer Gratian asserted that women should be subject to their men. The natural order for mankind is that women should serve men and children their parents, for it is just that the lesser serve the greater. The husband was his wife's lord and master. He was to her as Christ to the church. Thus, if a woman murdered her husband, she was guilty of petty treason and could be burned at the stake. He, however, had the right to beat her if she displeased him. Indeed, it was the husband's office to be his wife's chastiser. He was not supposed to kill or maim her through such punishment, although, according to the legal code enshrined in the customs of Beauvais, in a number of cases men may be excused for the injuries they inflict on their wives, nor should the law intervene. It was a woman's duty to love her husband and show him due obedience. In 1393, an anonymous Parisian writer instructed wives to obey their husband's commandments since his pleasure should come before yours, and he advised them to cherish your husband's person, give him plenty of attention, and the cheer of other delights, privy frolics, lovings, and secret matters. Do not be quarrelsome, but sweet, gentle, and amiable. And if you do all this, he will keep his heart for you, and he will care nothing for other women. The onus was always on the wife to maintain this debility of a marriage. In law, women were regarded as infants, so they had few legal rights. They were viewed as assets in the marriage market, chattels in property or land deals, or prizes in the game of courtly love. And their roles were very narrowly defined. When a group of noble women attempted to usurp male privilege and arrange a tournament in 1348, God put their frivolity to rout by heavy thunderstorms and diverse extraordinary tempests. In the 15th century, one of Joan of Arc's chief crimes was the adoption of male attire, which was seen as tantamount to heresy. Some high-born ladies were taught to read and write, but they were the fortunate few. In the 13th century, Philip of Navarre thought that generally women should not learn to read or write, unless they are going to be nuns, as much harm has come from such knowledge. For men will dare to send letters near them containing indecent requests in the form of songs or rhymes or tales, which they would never dare convey by message or word of mouth. And the devil could soon lead her on to read the letters, or even worse, answer them. Above all, in an age in which lineage and inheritance were paramount concerns, women were expected to be beyond moral reproach and to follow the virtuous example of the Virgin Mary. But because they were descended from Eve, who had committed the original sin, and were thus more likely to give in to temptation than men, they had to carefully guard their reputations. There was much comment on the frailty of women. Wheresoever beauty shows upon the face, there lurks much filth beneath the skin. This anonymous Parisian writer also observed that every good quality is obscured in the woman whose virginity or chastity falters. Women of sense avoid not only the sin itself, but also the appearance of it, so as to keep their good name. 
So you see in what peril a woman places her honour and that of her husband's lineage and of her children when she does not avoid the risks of such blame. The Church taught that sex was primarily for procreation, not pleasure, and that intercourse was only permissible within marriage. Adultery was regarded as exceptionally sinful, especially on the part of a wife, for it jeopardized her husband's bloodline. In 1371, the author of The Book of the Night of La Tour Landry insisted that women who fall in love with married men are worse than whores in brothels, and a gentlewoman who has enough to live on yet takes a lover does it from nothing but the carnal heat of lust. A husband who caught his wife in adultery had the legal right to kill her. There were, of course, many women who circumvented the conventions. Many ran farms or businesses or administered estates. Some even practiced as physicians. A few wrote books. And queens, by virtue of their exalted marital status, could exercise political authority and the power of patronage. Isabella would have been brought up to know exactly what was required of her as a daughter and as a wife, and she had before her the example of her mother, who was a queen in her own right. Isabella was born into the most illustrious royal house in Europe. It had gained its reputation largely through the careers of its 13th-century kings and the canonization in 1297 of her great-grandfather, Louis IX, one of the greatest of medieval monarchs. Her grandfather, Philip III, was a mild, mediocre man who briefly carried on the work of the sainted Louis, but it was left to his son, who became Philip IV in 1285 at the age of 17, to add to the prestige of the French monarchy. Philip IV extended the royal domain, effectively founded the Estates General, which evolved from his Paris Parlement, and centralized the royal administration. In 1284, Philip had made a brilliant marriage with the 11-year-old Jeanne, Queen of Navarre, who had succeeded to the throne of that kingdom in infancy. The acquisition of Navarre and Jeanne's counties of Champagne and Brie further strengthened Philip's power. Philip IV was the most handsome of men, and his stunning good looks earned him the nickname Philip the Fair. In those days, an indication of good looks, not blonde men. Exceptionally tall and strongly built, he also possessed a cold, calculating intelligence and a ruthless character. Yet there was, too, an ascetic side to his nature. Beneath his costly velvets and furs was concealed a hair shirt to mortify the flesh, and he regularly whipped himself with monastic discipline on the orders of his confessor. Those who met him found his fixed stare, his long silences, and his mysterious manner disconcerting. He is neither a man nor a beast, but a statue, commented the Bishop of Pamiers. As a ruler, Philip was authoritarian, despotic, efficient, and feared by his subjects. He was a resolute defender of the royal prerogative and obsessed with the acquisition of wealth. Being perennially short of money, he often resorted to drastic measures to get it. He dispossessed the Jews in his realm of vast sums, confiscated much of the property of the Lombard bankers, taxed the church heavily, sold peerages to commoners and, notoriously, debased the coinage several times. His daughter Isabella would inherit his obsession with money and his avarice. Isabella's mother, Jeanne of Navarre, was no beauty plump and plain, with a Moorish cast to her features, she was a dignified, pious and intelligent woman, capable of managing her kingdom of Navarre and her other domains, although she tactfully adopted her husband's reforms in France as her administrative model. Twice, with great vigour, she successfully defended her territories, 
firstly, against the Count of Bar, and secondly, against the combined might of Aragon and Castile. In 1298-99, the Queen, along with her mother, Blanche of Artois, and the Queen Dowager of France, Marie of Brabant, was actively involved in the diplomatic negotiations for her daughter Isabella's betrothal. Generally, however, being frequently preoccupied with the business of childbearing, Jeanne chose not to dabble in French politics and confined her influence to the domestic and intellectual spheres. In Paris, in 1304, she founded the College of Navarre, also known as the Hôtel de la Reine Jeanne, as a cultural centre for the city's flourishing university. When Philip ventured forth on his frequent tours of the French provinces, Jeanne invariably went with him. Theirs had been a love match, on her part at least, for they had been brought up together at the Chateau of Vincennes, after Jeanne's mother had seen fit to place her fatherless daughter under the protection of the King of France. The career of her mother seems to have impressed itself upon Isabella's consciousness. She inherited many of her mother's abilities and may well have tried to emulate her example in later life. Certainly, she learned from Jeanne what a woman was capable of in a male-dominated society. Philip's marriage to Jeanne produced seven children. Three sons survived childhood. The heir, Louis, born in 1289 in Paris. Philip, born around 1292-93 to at Lyon. And Charles, probably born in 1294. All grew into very handsome and great knights. Isabella was the sixth child. Her two older sisters, Marguerite and Blanche, died young in or after 1294, and her younger brother, Robert, born in 1297, died at the age of 11 in 1308 at Saint-Germain-en-Laye. As the only surviving daughter, Isabella was much favoured by her father and may well have been a little spoilt by him. Through the marriages of his children, Philip was resolved to extend France's influence and borders. With any luck, his grandson, born of the union between Isabella and Edward, would sit on the English throne. In September 1305, Philip's eldest son, Louis, was married to 15-year-old Marguerite of Burgundy, a granddaughter of St. Louis on her mother's side and the daughter of Robert II, Count of Burgundy. In 1307, Charles was married to Marguerite's cousin, 11-year-old Blanche of Burgundy, and Philip was married to the latter's sister, Jeanne. They were the daughters of Auton IV, Count of Burgundy. Through these unions, Franche-Comté and part of Burgundy became annexed to the French crown. In the early 14th century, France was the wealthiest and most heavily populated country in Europe. It had an estimated 21 million inhabitants, compared to 4.5 million in England. 80,000 people lived in Paris, twice the number who lived in London. French society was essentially feudal, and the royal domain now covered more than half of modern France. The rest was made up of vassal feudatories. The Capetian dynasty had ruled since 987, since when the crown had passed unfailingly from father to son. France at that time was at the hub of European culture, and Paris was the intellectual centre of Christendom. King Philip himself was a generous and discriminating patron of the arts, and Queen Jeanne, who descended from the brilliant and scholarly counts of Champagne, set a high cultural standard at court. In her retinue, she kept minstrels and trouvères, who provided sophisticated musical entertainment. Isabella spent her childhood in the royal palaces around the Ile de France, and, of course, in Paris, at the Louvre, then a moated chateau, and the Palace de la Cité, which was rebuilt by Philip IV. The Palais de Justice now stands on the site. 
Very little is known of her daily life during these early years. A few grants to her are recorded, and probably quite early on, a lady called Théophania de Saint-Pierre was appointed her nurse. Isabella became much attached to her, and Théophania would accompany her to England and remain with her for many years. Isabella apparently received a good education for her time. She was lucky enough to be taught to read, and her love of books remained with her throughout her life. There is no evidence that she ever learned to write, although it is quite possible. Above all, she must have grown up with a strong sense of her status and importance as the daughter of Europe's most powerful monarch and the future wife of the Prince of Wales, whose father was nearly as powerful. Promised when she was four, she could hardly have remembered a time when she was not aware that she would one day be Queen of England. Moreover, as the great-granddaughter of St. Louis, she would certainly have been raised to believe in the sanctity of the royal house of Capet to which she belonged, and its superiority over all other ruling dynasties. She may well also have cherished the naive expectation that all kings were like her father. Although Isabella's childhood was privileged, it was overshadowed by war and by the quarrel her father waged with the Pope. She would have heard of Philip's envoy's physical assault on the violent and intransigent Boniface VIII in September 1303 and would have learned, doubtless to her distress, how the outraged pontiff excommunicated her father the very next day. Even more shocking, later that month, Boniface died as a result of the assault. Fortunately for France, the election of a compliant elderly Frenchman, Clement V, in 1305, paved the way for a reconciliation. And in 1309, under pressure from Philip, Clement moved the seat of the papacy from Rome to Avignon in southern France, where it was to remain for nearly 70 years, in thrall to the kings of France. Meanwhile, in April 1305, when Isabella was not quite ten, her mother died at Vincennes, aged only 32. One French chronicler accused her husband of poisoning her, but that is hardly credible, for Philip the Fair was grief-stricken at Queen Jeanne's passing, and his suffering was manifestly evident as he followed her funeral cortege to the Abbey of Saint-Denis near Paris. There's no record of Isabella being present. Jeanne was succeeded as King of Navarre by her eldest son, Louis. After her death, Philip remained faithful to her memory and never remarried, which was exceptional in an age in which royal marriages could secure valuable political advantages. With Queen Jeanne's steadying influence removed, the French court lost much of its gravitas. The king's three young daughters-in-law now emerged as the leaders of fashionable society, and they were flighty, mischievous girls, intent only on pleasure. Soon, the court was plunged into a hectic round of fates, dancing and novel diversions, and moralists professed themselves shocked at the new fashions promoted by these princesses who, along with other fripperies, set a trend for daringly slit skirts. In the months after the Queen's death, Pope Clement began urging Edward I to press on with plans for his son's marriage to Isabella, and on October 15th, the Prince of Wales authorised the English envoys to conclude the contract. There was talk of a proxy wedding at Lyon, to coincide with the new Pope's coronation there. And on November the 11th, Philip empowered Isabella to appoint her proxies. The Pope issued the necessary dispensation for the marriage on November 27th, and on December 3rd, at the Louvre, Isabella named her proxies. They were her uncle, Louis of Evreux, Gilles de Saint-Paul, and the Count of Dreux. Yet... There is no record of the proxy marriage ever taking place. The evidence suggests that it was prevented 
by further disputes over Gascony. Still, the tortuous preliminaries dragged on. In 1306, Clement sent Cardinal Peter the Spaniard to England to negotiate the final arrangements for the union between the Prince of Wales and the Fair Maiden, and expressed the hopeful opinion that peace between England and France was imminent. Cardinal Peter was received by Edward I at Carlisle on March the 12th, 1307, and on the 16th the King gave his formal consent to the Union. When Parliament met at Easter at Carlisle, the marriage was unanimously approved, and practical preparations for it were immediately put in hand. In late April, Prince Edward was supposed to go to France to marry Isabella at Poitiers. He even travelled to Dover and waited there nine days for his father's order to embark, but it never came. Instead, the prince was summoned to Scotland to assist his father in the Scottish campaign. Apparently, the king was having doubts that this marriage would bring the lasting peace that everyone was hoping for. He evidently had further thoughts, however, for two months later, shortly before he died on July 7, 1307, he belatedly commanded his son to marry Isabella. The next day, the Prince of Wales succeeded him as King Edward II. The new king had shown no interest whatsoever in his coming marriage. There is no record of his sending any letter or gift to his future bride, or even showing any curiosity about her. However, if he reneged on the marriage treaty, he stood to lose Gascony, and with Scotland in turmoil, he could not afford to fight a war on two fronts. Immediately after his accession, therefore, he dispatched the bishops of Durham and Norwich and the earls of Lincoln and Pembroke to France to conclude the negotiations. They returned home with enthusiastic opinions of Isabella's beauty, and some chroniclers accuse Edward of being so eager to marry her that he abandoned his chances of conquering Scotland in his haste. However, as will be seen, Edward had far more pressing personal concerns at this time. Late in August, King Philip ordered his brother, Louis, Count of Evreux, to enter into negotiations with the English, and by September 24th, representatives of Evreux had arrived in England. The Count was already in correspondence with King Edward. In October, Parliament voted funds for the coming royal wedding and the coronation of the King and Queen that was to follow, and on November 6th, the King sent his envoys back to France to appoint a day for the nuptials and make the final arrangements. Four days later, Edward gave orders for preparations for his journey to France, the wedding ceremony, which he wanted to take place at Boulogne, and the reception of his bride in England. At the Palace of Westminster, he had the royal lodgings restored, the gardens freshly turfed, with new trellises erected, the fish ponds cleaned and restocked, and the nearby Queen's Bridge, a pier on the Thames, repaired. A royal ship, the Margaret of Westminster, was commissioned to bring the new queen home. Edward had it repainted and refitted, and he himself designed wardrobes and buttries inside it for his bride's belongings. He also ordered tapestries embroidered with the royal leopards and Gaveston's heraldic eagles for the coronation. Meanwhile, at the insistence of the Pope, Philip agreed to the wedding taking place at Boulogne in January. He had a well-known devotion to Our Lady of Boulogne, and the location would be convenient for the English. By now, Isabella was busy with her trousseau. These happy and auspicious plans were overshadowed in France by the mass arrest of about 2,000 Knights Templar on the King's orders on October 13th. All over France, members of this monastic order, the Knights of the Temple of Solomon, founded in 1119 to protect pilgrims visiting the Holy Land, 
were taken into captivity on charges of heresy, fornication, and worse, and their property was immediately sequestered by the crown. It was not, of course, coincidental that the Templars had grown fabulously rich over the centuries, and that King Philip was again desperately in need of funds. For the next seven years, the Templars in France would be accused of heresy, idolatry, sodomy, sacrilege, bestiality, and various other vile practices, and interrogated, tortured, tried, and sometimes burned at the stake. Philip's treatment of the Templars paved the way for their condemnation by the Pope and the dissolution of the Order. In England, in December 1307, Edward II gave offence to his future father-in-law by proclaiming that the charges against the Templars were unfounded, but just over a week later he changed his mind and ordered the arrest of all members of the Order in his realm. On January 10th, 1308, the Order of the Temple was suppressed in England, too. Shortly afterwards, the English envoys returned from France, and on January the 22nd, King Edward set sail from Dover for Boulogne to marry Isabella. Edward II was the youngest of the four sons of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile, and when he was born at Carnarvon Castle on April 25, 1284, just after his father's conquest of Wales, his one surviving elder brother, Alfonso, then aged ten, was heir to the English throne. It was only when Alfonso died of a fever the following August that the four-month-old Edward became his father's heir apparent. According to a famous legend, Edward I presented his newborn son on a shield to the Welsh as their prince, having promised them a native-born ruler. But this is a myth. Young Edward was not created Prince of Wales until February 1301, and the first account of his presentation was recorded as late as 1584 by John Stowe, the Elizabethan antiquarian. The prince was born into a large family, Queen Eleanor presented her husband with sixteen children, but most of his siblings had either died young or been married off by the time he was born. Of those still in England, Joan of Acre, born 1272, was married in 1290 to Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester. Mary, born 1278, became a nun at Amesbury Abbey, Wiltshire, at the age of seven, and Elizabeth, born 1282, became in 1302 the wife of Humphrey de Boone, Earl of Hereford and Essex. In 1286, Edward's parents went to Gascony for three years, leaving him in England. His younger sisters, Beatrice and Blanche, were both born there, but died young. Edward spent most of his early years at the royal manor of Langley, near St. Albans, which became his favourite residence. When his father and mother returned to England in 1289, they must have seemed like strangers to the young prince. King Edward, now fifty years old, was a terrifying and remote authoritarian figure, and Queen Eleanor was already ailing. She died the following year. Edward of Carnarvon would therefore have been more or less emotionally isolated during his early childhood and was probably closer to his nurse, Alice Leegrave, than to anyone else. She was to remain in his service for 29 years. The 45-year gap between his father and himself cannot have made for closeness or understanding on either side. Edward I was one of England's greatest medieval kings. In build, he was handsome and of great stature, towering head and shoulders above the average. A drooping eyelid and a slight stammer or lisp did not detract from his aura of majesty, nor did he lack a ready power of persuasion in argument. He was autocratic, forceful, fierce-tempered, fearless, and full of boundless vigour. A born leader... 
and a talented and dynamic ruler, he could still be unscrupulous, ruthless, cruel, and even violent. Even his second wife, Marguerite of France, who loved and respected him, conceded that he was terrible to all the sons of pride. Under Edward I, the prestige and authority of the English crown reached its medieval zenith. In every respect, he personified contemporary ideals of kingship. A distinguished warrior, he inflicted a devastating conquest upon Wales, then spent the rest of his reign relentlessly trying to conquer Scotland. He streamlined the royal administration, enforced the royal prerogative, implemented far-reaching legal reforms, and promoted parliamentary government. He understood the need to curb the power of the great feudal lords, and by sheer force of character and judicious marriage alliances, he kept his barons firmly under control. It was only towards the end of the reign that aristocratic opposition to his policies grew vociferous, yet he would not brook any criticism or make concessions or changes. Edward had married his first wife, Eleanor of Castile, in 1254, when he was 15 and she only 10. They were devoted to each other. And when she died in November